Uh, We're in Matthew chapter 26 as we come to the end of our King in the Kingdom series. And so I want to just start off reading our passage. It's a a longer passage, so I wanted to get all that uh, before we go, and then I'll pray, and we'll jump right in. Okay, Matthew chapter 26, I'll pick it up in verse 30. I think we're going through verse 56 this morning. I ask you to listen carefully. This is God's word. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here with me and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went and away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But then how should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching you and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we, I just recognize that the weight of this passage, the weight of what we're going to look at this week and next is, is far beyond my ability to communicate. And so... Uh, As always, I want to rely and lean on your Holy Spirit to bring your word alive into our hearts and our lives and our our minds. And so, Holy Spirit, 
Help us to see, uh, see Jesus in this, see ourselves, uh, and stir us, in us a longing to uh, know you and worship you as a result of your word to us this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you might find it odd that during Advent, we're at Easter in the Bible. And though we didn't plan it that way, with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection coinciding with Advent, actually, I think it's perfect. Uh, Among the lights and the music and the songs and all the good things of Christmas time, sometimes there can be this disconnect for the very purpose in which Jesus came. Matthew doesn't make the disconnect. In fact, at the very beginning of his gospel, Matthew chapter 1, in the Christmas narrative, he says this in verse 21, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's this moment that we're at in, in Matthew's gospel. This week I, I came across a poem. It's a Christmas poem, but I think it captures exactly what I'm, I'm saying here. So let me just read the poem to you. It's by a, an author named U.A. Fanthrop called The Wicked Fairy at the Manger. The Wicked Fairy at the Manger. My gift for the child? No wife, kids, home. No money sense. Unemployable. Friends? Yes, but the wrong sort. The work shy, women, wogs, petty infringers of the law, persons with notifiable diseases, poll tax collectors, tarts, the bottom rung. His end, I think, will make it public, prolonged, painful. Right, said the baby. That was roughly what we had in mind. I love that picture. Because this wicked fairy with his wicked schemes is like, uh, his life's going to be awful. He's going to have an awful, awful death. And then the baby Jesus says, yes, that's the plan. Sort of. That, that, that's the plan. And, and in this passage, we look and we see that there is this plan of, of God unfolding where, where wicked men are scheming and yet God is accomplishing his good purposes. Um. You know, one of the privileges of being a pastor now for almost 20 years is I get to be with people on their, their very best days, and I get to be invited into their lives on their very worst days. So I get to stand in front of a bride and groom as they say vows to one another, and I get to be right there in that moment. I get to go to the hospital when their, their firstborn is, is born and, and celebrate with them. I get to baptize people and celebrate their, their life from, from spiritual death to spiritual life. This is the highs, but, but there are other times where I do funerals and memorial services where I go to the hospital not because it's a celebration, but because the news is not good and it doesn't look like they have long to live. More, more than all that, I, I get to uh, spend time uh, in my office or at a coffee and just hear people pour out their hearts and their anxieties and their fears and their depression and uh, their struggles in their marriages and their struggles financially and their struggles in their faith. And uh, I've I've spent countless hours doing that. I was thinking this week about uh, one person I I talked to quite a bit in this, and that would be my mom who died about eight years ago. She died of ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. It's a degenerative disease which means that it's a death sentence and you know it when you are diagnosed with it. And she knew it in particular because uh, she, uh, her father had died from it just a few years before that. So as my mom 
wrestled with this. And as her body began to break down and uh, her, her faith did grow, but also uh, her anxiety and uh, her depression. And so I remember uh, I was in uh, Japan. I would talk to her on the phone and, and try to just comfort her and ensure her. And, and I remember a question that just came up in, in almost every one of our conversations. Does God know? Does God see? Does God, does God care? Again, she would just be real honest and real raw in those moments. And I, I would try to just uh, affirm her and I, I, would, I, I would point to the cross and say, God cares, look, look at his great love for you. And, and sometimes I would comfort her and sometimes not. We would just kind of hang up and say, man, that's not, it's not going, it's, it's a bad day. Does God see, does God care, does God know? And, and in studying this week, I, I realized that uh, while, while we should point to the cross as God's great love to us, there, there's actually another, it's actually this passage that I should have been pointing to. So, see, Jesus is, is, is about to go through two very anguish-riddled uh, days. Like one right here in the, the garden, we see that Jesus is in anguish, and, and one on the cross. But, but here's the thing, on the cross... Jesus is experiencing something that none of us ever can imagine or will experience. We cannot relate to it. You, you may have felt like at times in your life that you've been abandoned by God, but by, by on the authority of the Word of God and Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, you have never been and you were, will never be abandoned by God, but Christ on the cross is abandoned by the Father. Christ on the cross is receiving the, the justified wrath of God against your sin and mine. He is dying in the place of sinners. And in that way, uh, he can't really relate to us. But here in the garden, there's something different going on. One of the things we have to keep in mind uh, in our theology is that Jesus is truly God and truly man. And sometimes we, we disconnect those two things. Sometimes we think that, that the plan of salvation is kind of a, a divine computer code. Just run the code and, and he'll achieve it. But, but he is truly man. And, and in this passage, we see his true humanity. And we see that he does know. He does care. He does see. Because he has experienced the worst this world has to offer. I mean, all of us have had those days, right? Where... You don't even know, necessarily know why, but you feel anxious. I, I have. I mean, it could happen to me tomorrow. I, I, my, my wife will describe me as melancholic. I, I can have up days and down days, and there, there may not be a, a, a reason for that, but I, I can feel like there's a, a, a tightness in my chest. I can feel like there's, uh, there's weights just pressing down on my shoulders and my chest, and, and it can get pretty bad. I have friends and, and others, and maybe some of you have dealt with this, where you just don't want to get out of bed. You go through prolonged seasons of suffering and depression and despair, and, and you don't know if God sees or cares or, or, or can relate to you. The agony that Jesus is going through in the garden says he can relate to you. It reminds me of what uh, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4. It says, for we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He is not, he, he is able, he knows, he's been there. That, that's what this is saying. 
So, so uh, suffering, anxiety, depression, despair, that, that's a spectrum. And, and we all in the human experience are, are at different points in that spectrum, even today. And, and some are further, and maybe you've been further in the past. Uh, some in, in 2021 will look back at 2020 and be like, remember the good old days in 2020? And Jesus says, I've been there. I've gone as far as the despair can go. I've gone as deep as the depression can go. He he says in this passage, unto death. He knows. He cares. He sees. And so this passage is not just meant to show us uh, Christ's passion, though it does that, and, and his love for us. It's meant to encourage us. Because we live on this side of eternity. We have those days. We feel that anxiety. We, we go through depression. We suffer. And Jesus says, I'm with you. And so to my mom, I would say, Jesus understands. He's been there. He's been further than any of us down that road. And this passage shows us. So let's look at this passage. First of all, from, from a 30,000 foot view, if you, if you lit, picked up on it, there, there's a couple strands going on in this passage. As I said last week, uh, there, there's characters that, that the camera is going to pan to at different times. And in this case, there's, there, there's the disciples and there's God and his plan. And in the disciples, uh, I said, we can see and find ourselves. And so in this story, we see there's these disciples. And at the beginning of it, they're saying, we'll never abandon you. Jesus says, no, you're going to abandon you. They're like, no, we swear we'll never leave you. And, and Peter stands up and he's very bold. Even if I have to die, I'll never leave you. And, and just to be very clear, Matthew makes it clear at the end of verse 35 where Peter says, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So, so they're all indignant. And, and I believe they believe that. I, I believe they, they, they with, their, with the strongest faith possible, they think, yes, we will never deny you, Jesus. But even in this, there's a lesson about faith. You can have strong faith in a weak object like yourself, and it will falter. In the Bible's clear, you can have weak, teeny, tiny little faith in a strong object like Jesus, and it will never falter. But they believe in themselves. They say, no, we're going to do it. But, but, but very quickly, things begin to unravel with the disciples. Jesus goes to the garden and, and says, pray with me. This is, this is my moment of need. This is my hour. I need you with me. And they fall asleep. We fall asleep. When Jesus wakes them up, uh, they do what we do. They, they see the situation is, is bad. And so what do they do? They, they try to take it into their own hands. We, we know that, that it was actually uh, Peter that cuts off the ear of Malchus from the Gospel of John. Peter wakes up and says, well, I, I can fix this. I, I know what to do. And, and he just makes it more of a mess. And Jesus rebukes him. And then one of the saddest kind of verses in the Bible, the very last one that we read, says, then all the disciples left him and fled. It's probably about a three-hour time frame before they said, no, we will die with you. And 21 verses later, they're scattered, terrified, like frightened little girls hiding from the boogeyman in the basement. And that's, that's how they, that they've so changed. And, and so we see on the one hand that, that, that they've faltered. They, they're messing this up. 
On the other hand, we see uh, just that, that's dominating this is the plan of God or, or, or the will of God. And so Jesus says, this plan has to happen. It's been written down three times, he says, to fulfill the scriptures as it is written at the beginning and the end. Uh, and it has been written, sometimes in very precise details, like where the Messiah is going to bo- be born, how the Messiah is going to die, uh, how many pieces of silver are going to be given to the betrayer of the Messiah. And other times, there's passages like Isaiah 53 that kind of just get to the heart of it. What is happening in this plan? God is reconciling the world to himself through the death of the son. So by his stripes, we are healed. And Jesus says, this has to happen. It's been written, in fact, before the foundations of the world. This has been the plan of God. But again, let us not think of that as just something that's inevitable because in this passage, it makes it seem, we know how the story is going to end, but, but in the moment of the garden, in his full humanity suffering, there seems to be that the plan is in peril. He is genuinely wrestling, genuinely suffering. Luke says that he is in agony as he prays. Well, let's pick this up and let's zoom in a little bit and see what, what happens here. So in verse 36, it said, then Jesus went to the place, uh, to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So, so that the actual text and the other gospels tell us that this kind of just came on out of the blue. Like he had been 33 years living life among us, limited by the flesh, like you and I are limited by the flesh, but something different, something unique is happening, and it it comes on like a tsunami, just a a wave into his soul. He is deeply, deeply troubled and deeply sorrowful. Verse 38, then he said to him, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Jesus, for lack of a better term, is freaking out. Which seems odd, again, if you only think of Jesus in terms of his divinity. But Jesus is like you and me. He is fully human as well. But I think when the two come by, he, he knows what's going to happen. So, so why is it in church history and, and, and across the world where, where there are many cases where Christians are martyred and, and they go with, with peace, they go uh, resolutely, uh, and they, they go uh, just with kind of a stoic confidence? We don't see that at all in Jesus. He is troubled, deeply, deeply troubled. Why? Because the fact of the matter is no one, no one is facing a death like he is facing. Others have died for their faith. Others have died for what they believe in, but Jesus knows. He knows an eternity past of perfect union with the Father, and he knows that a moment is going to come where the Father is going to turn his back, and the justified wrath of sin for you and me is going to be poured out. He's going to die in the place of sinners. He's going to die a sinner's death. He's going to uh, feel the full weight of your sin and mine and all the sins of the world in that moment poured out on him, and rightly so, he is terrified. He is in agony. His stress levels are maxed out. Luke tells us, and Luke was a doctor, that, that he, was, he was sweating drops of, uh, that, that looked like drops of blood. What, what is possible is that a, a rare medical condition when you are extremely stressed is that the, under the skin, the tiny little capillaries can burst and something called hematidrosis can mix blood with your sweat. It's possible that he was that stressed out. Of course he was. There was no one more stressed out 
in the history of the universe than Jesus in this moment. So what does Jesus do? Well, well, Jesus does what he's always done. He goes to his Father and he prays. And and Jesus in his gospel has taught us several things about prayer, how how to pray and and why to pray. And and we we would do well to uh, memorize those and study those, but, but, but some things are more caught than taught. I think we can personally learn more about prayer in, in Jesus' prayer in the garden for our own lives than even in his teachings on prayer. So I'm going to put on the screen a few things that are uh, appropriate in this manner. Just a second. So about prayer, let's, let's look at it. It says, then said to him, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face. He gets prostrate before his father and he prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup is an Old Testament metaphor of, of divine judgment, of the wrath of God being poured out against rebellious sinners. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So uh, Jesus is wrestling in prayer. And we see in the next verse that, that, that we only have one verse that took us about 10 seconds. But this probably, uh, that, that he's just summarizing what was about an hour of prayer. Just wrestling with God. Getting to this place like, please Lord, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but you will. He has a battle with his will as far as his human Nature is concerned and the divine plan of God. He came to the disciples, found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing. Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so just a few things that we begin to see about prayer is first of all is prayer is essential. Can you put that on the screen? Prayer is essential. Jesus knows he has just a few hours left on the planet. He, he knows it's all coming to a head. And so what does he do? He does one thing that's the most important thing that he could possibly do. He goes and he prays. He, he, gets, he gets alone. He, he brings his disciples, but he brings a few closer. But, but you ever been so anxious or, or depressed or in despair that you want people close to you? You just don't want them talking to you. And so this is where he's done. And he's gone and he's prayed because prayer is essential. But we see something else in this as well. Prayer is warfare. It's warfare. I think one of the reasons... Most of us, and as a pastor, and I I put myself in this category as well, when I ask people, tell me about your spiritual life, what's one thing that you'd like to see uh, improve? Nine times out of ten, it's prayer. So so on the one hand, we know it, but we don't do it. Why? Because we don't see it as what it is. It is warfare. There is a battle going on. It's not just a battle between Jesus and the, spirit, the forces of darkness. This is what's hanging in the balance is our very lives. Our salvation, the plan of God. There is a battle raging. So Jesus started his public ministry uh, being tempted in the wilderness. And he's praying throughout. And Luke says it this way at the end of that. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Well, that opportune time is now. So he is battling in a spiritual way through prayer. If you don't see prayer as warfare, you won't pray for your marriage. 
You won't pray for your church. You won't pray for the nations. You won't pray for everything going on. You'll see prayer simply as a thing, as a God, as, as a vending machine to get what you want and need in this moment. But not, that's not how Jesus sees it. There, there is a essential battle going on. It is warfare. We see the other thing is that prayer is to be persistent. He prays for an hour. First of all, we see that. Again, I don't know if there's anyone here this week that took an hour to pray, but, but, but he prays and he comes back to Peter and he's like, you couldn't, you couldn't pray for one hour? And then he goes and he prays again for the second time. And, when, and this time he says, my father, if this cannot pass until, unless I drink it, your will be done. You see, there's a, a similar prayer, but a similar prayer, but it shifts. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed the third time. It's persistent, saying the same words again. He's just battling, begging, battling the anxiety, the depression, the, 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 the pressure because he's persistent. And we see the next thing, that prayer is purposeful. Did you see the purpose of what's happening in Jesus' heart and mind in this, in the three scenes? Jesus understands prayer as primarily bending and aligning our wills with the sovereign goodwill of the Father. Saying, uh, here's what I thank God, but, but nevertheless, not my will be done. I, I want to align my life, my will, my thinking with your plans because you are infinite in wisdom. Your plan is infinitely good. And, and so w- prayer is a battle to bend our wills to his. Sometimes that will take three hours for you. When you're just wrestling with God, God, I don't understand. This is what I want. Uh, it seems like this is what you want. I don't want that. And so you just battle. Sometimes that takes three hours to do. Finally, we see that prayer is powerful. Did you notice that there is a shift and a change in Jesus at the end of this? When he gets up the third time, he's a different Person, He has a different demeanor, a different posture of the heart. Uh, he's, he's been transformed in, in prayer. So the other gospels tell us that at the end of these, this third prayer, uh, Luke tells us that God sent an angel to minister to him, to encourage and strengthen him so he could go accomplish the plan of God. Which, which brings us back to the plan. In this, we see, one, just the remarkable love of Jesus. It shows us that the plan is necessary. He's, he's praying, Lord, Father, if it's possible, take this cup for me. And, and God, the Father says, no, it's not possible. This is necessary for the salvation, for the plan to go forward. You have to go through this. Which is remarkable because in this moment, he has a vision of all that he's about to go through far worse than we could ever think or imagine. Not just the physical, that's, that's such a small part of it, but the spiritual suffering that he is about to face. In this moment, he's in the garden. It's quiet. The crowds and the mobs haven't come yet. He could get up and walk away. But the plan is essential. Because we've seen what the disciples are doing. We've seen just, again, a mirror of our own souls. They are desperately in need. They're, they're broken. They're, they're, they're afraid. They're, they're lost. And they need Jesus to come through for him. And so the plan is essential. You know, this is not the first time in the Bible where there's been some struggle in a garden. 
fact, on the very first pages of the Bible, there is a garden. God creates Adam and Eve and puts them in a garden of, of immense beauty and says, uh, we're going to be in relationship. And because of that, there's only one rule. Obey me about the tree and you can live with me forever, God says to the first Adam. The first Adam, we know the story, says, no, I think I'll do life my own way. Sin enters into the world. Brokenness, disease, suffering, death, anxiety, depression, all the things came into the world in that moment. And he disobeyed God and he was cast out of the garden. And here, millennia later, there's another garden. And what the Bible calls the second Adam is in the garden. But this time, the Father says, obey me about the tree, the cross, and you will be separated from me. But those guys, the ones sleeping, those guys, the ones that will put you on the cross, the ones that are still sinners, the ones that are enemies, if you obey me about the tree, there will be a pathway back to the family of God. And the second, where the first Adam failed, the second Adam does not fail. He obeys the Father about the tree, and the plan is accomplished. And here's the beauty about the plan. Everything that the plan accomplishes, everything that Jesus does in, in obedience to the Father, that all comes to us, that we, we get to benefit from this. So his victory is our victory. His redemption is now applied to us. His healing comes to us. It is not God's will for you to live a life and an eternity of anxiety, anguish, and despair. He has purchased that by his blood to, so that you can have your healing, but he's also purchased our transformation. Remember the disciples in this moment. Then all the disciples left him and fled. They scatter. I don't know if they went off by twos and threes or one here or one there, but, but they're first just trying to save themselves. But there had to be a moment shortly after that where, where they get in a back alley, they find themselves safe, they, 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 they gather at a room that they expect, that they're still looking out for the authorities. But there had to be a moment when they gathered once again, and I imagine the shame I imagine that they could not make eye contact with each other. They all know what each other said. They all know what they said. And here they are, shivering with fear, knowing that their rabbi, their savior, is about to be tortured and crucified. They're broken. But that's not the end of the story. See, the purpose of this passage is not merely to say, yeah, in and of ourselves, we, we fall and we break and we, we uh, fall short of God's glory and we, we let Jesus down. That's true, but that's not the end of the story. Because what Christ accomplishes in the, the plan is ours, accredited to us. And so he gives us victory, he gives us healing, but he gives us also transformation. After his death, burial, and by the power of God on the third day, resurrection, he's going to come to these same guys, these cowards, and he's going to restore them. He's going to lift their heads. He's going to look in their eyes, and he's going to say, I forgive you. It's okay. More than that, I'm going to give you my spirit, and my spirit is going to take that heart of stone and and put in a heart of flesh. It's the new covenant, and this is going to transform your lives. And these guys became transformed. These terrified, hiding in the upper room kind of guys will will go forward into the world and with boldness like a lion proclaim the gospel and they will suffer and they will die and they will do it with joy and victory knowing that that's not the end of their story. That's true of you and me. So what do you need today? Do you feel anxious? Do you feel depressed? 
Jesus knows. Jesus sees he's been there. You feel like, well, I, I don't feel like that kind of transformation. Well, it's offered to you. It's been purchased for you. The Spirit uh, des- delights to live his life in you for God's glory and for your joy. That's for all of us. And then we've been entrusted with that message in a world that is anxious and depressed and, and, and pressed down and, and worried and in fear. We carry the message of hope that the world needs. That's what Christmas is about, right? Hope has come down. God has been made low And we get to carry that to our neighbors and to the nations. To that end, let's pray. So Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you, Jesus, that you were a faithful, obedient son in the garden. And your victory in the garden is now our victory. Your healing is now our healing. And you've purchased our transformation. So Lord, help us by the power of your spirit Walk in that healing, walk in that redemption, and walk in that transformation this week to the end that Jesus is glorified and we are satisfied. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.